0: what the noted Hebrew scholar Alan Ross calls the central passage in the book of Genesis. And surely the significance of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, in relationship to the outworking of God's plan in human history, his redemptive plan would be difficult to overstate. In the final verses of chapter 11, we were introduced to a man named Abraham, or Abram, And his family. Most of us are more familiar with him by the name Abraham. Abraham's name was originally Abram, meaning the father is exalted. When he was given that name by his parents, they were participants in the moon cult of Ur. So the father figure being referenced there could very well have been the moon god Nanar. Or perhaps some other pagan deity. Genesis chapter 17 verse 5 records that God changed Abraham's name, or Abram's name, to Abraham, no doubt to stress a clear-cut separation from his pagan roots. The new name, which is interpreted by the biblical text as meaning father of a multitude, was also a statement of God's promise to Abraham that he would have many descendants, as well as being a significant test of Abram's faith, since he's 99 years old at the time, and his wife Sarah is 90. (coughs) To make things easier as we move on through this exposition, I'm going to often use these names interchangeably, Abram and Abraham. Most of the time, using the name that's given to them later, Abraham and Sarah, rather than Abram and Sarai. Um, The the biblical writers do this. Uh, People do it in in common culture as well. Uh, Elton John, this last week, a very talented man, made a very stupid statement, Um, a very, very blasphemous statement, saying that Jesus was a homosexual. But if we were to uh, if we were to say that Elton John was born in England, uh, that would be a true statement. But it's a more true statement to say Reginald, Reginald Dwight, I think was his name, was, was born in England. That was his name before he changed it to Elton. Uh, so people still refer to him now as Elton. So I'm going to refer to Abraham most of the time as Abraham, even though I'm very well aware it was later that he changed his name. So forgive me if you're a stickler on that. I hate to have to keep correcting myself from time to time. So uh, Paul does it. In Romans, he calls him Abraham after the fact, and so we're going to do that too. The three major faiths on the planet today all trace their heritage back to this man, Abraham. The Christian and the Jew, through Isaac, the Muslim traces their lineage and heritage back to Abraham through Ishmael. Now the reasons why Islam differs from Christianity and and the Jewish faith with regard to how they trace their lineage are, are, are too extensive for us to go over today. But we will cover that when it comes up in the particular passage later on in the study. In December 1966, National Geographic magazine speculated on why Abraham is considered to be great by so many, by so many across cultural lines. Well, they theorized by saying this, Abraham, the patriarch, conceived a great and simple idea, the ideal of a single, almighty God. They could not have been more wrong. Abraham did not conceive the concept of monotheism. He recognized it and he accepted it. He didn't invent it. He acknowledged it as being true. It's interesting to me how people who refuse to acknowledge the existence of God jump through so many psychological and philosophical hoops to try to make it work. No. Abraham is not important because he invented the idea of a single monotheistic God. No, he recognized it. There were always people who recognized God. We've studied them earlier on in our passage. But in Genesis chapter 12, this key passage, this central passage in the book, Abram obeys the commandment of the Lord to forsake his homeland for the promise of a new land a new nation and personal greatness by making the journey to Canaan. He'll also demonstrate obedience to the command to be a blessing by making a proclamation of his faith through worship. Open, if you will, to me to Genesis chapter 12. And we'll consider this morning the first three verses. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Since this is... The central passage, or certainly among the central passages of the book of Genesis, we'll do more on it than we just do today, but we'll start our exposition of it today. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." Leaving one's homeland and one's family to go to a distant land is a much, it's a much more significant decision in some cultures than it is in others. For Abram, this would not have been an easy thing. In the ancient Near East, families lived together as a clan, and the economic viability of that clan was dependent upon participation by more than just the father. The family was a place of security and comfort and to move what was approximately 1,500 miles from Ur up to Here and then down into the land, that was a significant move. They couldn't just call up Allied van lines and say, hey, we want to make a cross-country move, have them loaded all up, and then you go the other direction. That's, that's not what they did. It's a significant move. In fact, generally speaking, it depends on the route that you go, 1,500 miles is basically the distance from here to Los Angeles, But they were walking. Now some people, some skeptics would say that Abraham couldn't have done that. But nobody at that time did that. It was just simply too far and the terrain was too rugged to go all the way from where we claim that Abraham went to where he ended up. But it's interesting. There are several tablets that have been found in two different locations, one in Iran, one up near Haran, that that rebut that theory. One of the most interesting is there's a tablet that has been recovered uh, which, which looks like a rental contract. Uh, I guess it was Hearst Rent-A-Wagon of the, of the ancient times <laughs> because it was, a, it was a rental agreement for a wagon. And in this rental agreement for this wagon that's found in Mesopotamia, actually the, the tablets that said this, I think we're in, actually in Iran, which is to the east of Mesopotamia. And as part of this rental agreement... One of the things that the person would agree to is not to take the wagon as far as the Great Sea. Now, the Great Sea was the Mediterranean Sea. back. That's what they called it at least back then. Now, you've got to think about this for a minute. If they're having to write that in stone in a tablet that you can't take the wagon all the way to the Great Sea, some knucklehead must have already tried to take the wagon all the way to the Great Sea, showing that it's a long way there. Now, it has been done, in other words. It wasn't a unique thing. So certainly, Abram was not doing something that was terribly unusual, but it was difficult for him. It appears as though Abram received this call from God in two stages. One when he was in Ur, and the other while he was in Haran. We began at least a brief discussion of that last week, but it's not crystal clear. Here's what we do know, though, and that's, it's helpful to put the facts together that we do know, and that's a lot of what we're going to do today. We're going to be putting information together to try to recreate what has actually happened here this, in this very, very significant passage. We do know this. In the New Testament, remember Stephen, right before he's martyred in Acts chapter 7, said this, Listen carefully, God appeared to Abraham, he doesn't call him Abram there, God appeared to Abraham, our father, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. So that's one bit of data that we have. We know that God appeared to Abram while he lived in Mesopotamia, before Haran. In other words, he appeared to him when he was in Ur of the Chaldees. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 7, this text will tell us, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. So if we were to synthesize those two passages, we can surmise that there was a call of some kind that was made to Abraham by God when he was in Ur of the Chaldees. And whatever that call was, Abraham obeyed it. He accepted it. And I would have to believe, putting all this together, that that call was essentially the presentation of the gospel. Now, we don't have the exact form that it came in. We know, we know that later on the text will tell us that Abraham believed Yahweh. He believed the Lord, and God credited it to him for righteousness. So something occurred in Ur of the Chaldees in the form of a gospel presentation. Now, Genesis 12 doesn't state that explicitly, but Genesis 15, 6 affirms that, and Hebrews 11:18 18 confirms that, or 11:8, 8, the passage that we read this morning for our scripture reading. But the evidence of Abram's faith was his obedience to the command of God. The evidence of his faith was the obedience to the command of God. Abram left Ur. And moved to Haran, taking with him his father, his wife, Sarai, or later called Sarah, his nephew, Lot, and a group of other people. This is a bit tricky. Even this part's a bit tricky. Because technically, Terah, Abraham's father, is still the head of the clan. They lived in a patriarchal society. And the father, no matter how old the father would be, was the head of that household. And then all the sons would be subservient to their father, and then eventually the oldest son would take over at the father's death. And then if a if a daughter would become married, then that new husband would be part of that clan as well. So Tara is still technically in charge of that family, and actually in... Verse 31 of chapter 11, it says, Terah took his son Abram and the rest of the family there. So how Abram convinced his father Terah to leave this land of idols, and Joshua chapter 24 does tell us that Terah was an idol worshiper. And quite frankly, Abraham probably was too, before he came to a saving faith in Yahweh. But we also have one little other tidbit information we have to <coughs> consider. That's how, the, how did Nahor get there? Nahor, remember, was Abram's brother. Uh, Nahor, is, nothing is said about Nahor leaving in, in Genesis chapter 11. But by the time we get further on down the road in the, in the narratives of Genesis, we find out that Nahor's family is up in Haran as well. Because you remember when Isaac wants a wife, or when Abraham wants a wife for Isaac, remember where he sends him? sends it back to Mesopotamia to the land of his relatives, and you remember the, the, those uh, the, where Rebecca comes from she 's a descendant of Nahor abraham 's brother, so it 's all a bit interconnected, certainly much much more interconnected than we would be today. When we read in Genesis chapter eleven verse thirty one that the family settled there after they left Ur and they moved up to Haran. when we read that they settled there. That indicates a sustained residency on Terah's part, the family's part. Now, how long they stayed, we don't know, but it must have been either months or years. We're not talking about just weeks. It's not like they made a pit stop there inherent and then continued on. There was some establishment there. I say all that to preface this, and that is that the call that we read in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, was probably given to Abram when he lived in Haran, not when he lived in Ur. The call that was made, what we read in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, was probably the call that was given to Abram when he lived in Haran, not Ur. In other words, this is the, the second of the calls. Now, some people say that it was the same call twice. It's a little difficult to say that Abram obeyed it if it's the same call twice, because... As we read a moment ago, Abram is called to go forth from his country, from his relatives, and from his father's house. And he doesn't really do that when he leaves Ur the Chaldees, does he? Because he takes his dad with him. But once he's in Haran and Terah dies, then he does leave and he's completely obedient. So that's why I would hold that this call went out in Haran. Now there's something that's very, 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 very important. Did I get your attention? Please listen carefully to this part. What is recorded here is not the Abrahamic covenant in its final form. Although the blessings that are offered here will be ensured by the covenant. The term covenant, as it is related to Abraham, does not not occur until the ceremonial affirmation of this covenant in Genesis chapter 15. At that point, the promises given to Abraham were conditioned, or at least at the point we have to hear, rather. The the promises given to Abraham are conditioned upon his faith. By the time we get to the final form of the Abrahamic covenant, these promises are unconditional. Did you hear that? It's extremely important. By the time we get to the final form of the Abrahamic covenant, the promises are unconditional. Unconditional. Now, some people mess this up and they mess it up to, to doing great damage to their theological system. Because if we only take Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, as the Abrahamic covenant, we're a little premature by doing that. But if we were to do that, they'd say, look, it's conditioned upon obedience. And then they make the flying leap and say, later on, the Jews weren't obedient, so therefore. The Jews are no longer God's people. The church has replaced Israel as, as the promise is given to Abraham. A careful study will make sure that we don't do that. Now there's something else that's extremely important too, because I'm going to talk the rest of this morning, in this morning's time, about Abraham's obedience to this call. Abraham's obedience to the call. We need to make, very, very, we need to make it very, very clear that Abraham had trusted Yahweh. To forgive his sins and to grant him eternal life before he leaves Ur of the Chaldees. His leaving Ur of the Chaldees, in other words, that act of obedience, is not the act of saving faith. In fact, Paul makes a great deal of this, at least of this principle, in Romans chapter 4. How was Abraham saved? He says. How was Abraham justified? He says. Was he justified by works? No, he's justified by faith. That's part of Paul's arguments in the first part of the book of Romans. So no, Abraham was not justified simply by leaving. He's justified by faith. And this is a complicated issue in these chapters of Genesis. I admit that. But bear with me, because by the time we get to Genesis fifteen six, hopefully we will have set the table and have presented it in such a way as it will be crystal clear by that time. But yes, there's disagreement, there's discussion about this. First, the Abrahamic covenant is in its seed form here, no pun intended, and, it's, and it is conditioned on Abraham's obedience. He has to go first, and then God is going to give him these unconditional promises, you see? But these unconditional promises will be ensured by the covenant that's given later. Now there's a very specific structure. One more piece of introduction before we get into the text itself. There's a very specific structure to verses 1 through 3 of the book of Genesis. The initial imperative is followed by three promises. He said that the imperative is go, or go forth from your country. The first imperative, or command, that's what an imperative is, is go. The first three promises read like this. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Now, there's a second imperative, and that second imperative is found at the end of verse 2. And for reasons I'll explain in just a few moments, in most of your Bibles, it's not going to read like a command. It's going to read like a future indicative. But, But bear with me, the second command is to be a blessing. Now, my New American Standard reads, and so you shall be a blessing. But in my Bible, there's a little marginal note in my English translation. There probably is in yours as well, indicating to you that that's actually a command. It's, and I'll explain why most Bibles translate this. And there's a legitimate reason to do it. you don't have to throw your New American Standard or NIV away. Just let, just yet, there's a reason why they do that. But let me explain it first. So the second imperative is be a blessing. And the second three promises that go with that imperative or, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse the one cursing you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, you see the structure before we get into the text itself. There's a command and three promises, then a second command and three promises in this central passage, in this extremely important passage. Now, the first imperative in chapter 12, verse 1, is the imperative or the command. Go. Please forgive me, I'm not trying to be rude. My voice is um, a little weak this morning. I'm trying to make sure we get through the whole thing. The first imperative is the command, go. So in order to receive the blessing from God, Abram has to separate himself. He's got to separate himself from his country, which is very important to someone in the ancient world. I trust it's still important to us today. I'm very, I'm very proud to, to be an American, in spite of all the flaws that we have. And it aggravates me sometimes when all, all people point out, are the flaws. There are many great things about our country, even though there's some serious, there are some serious difficulties as well. But I'm, I'm very happy with my country. Well, Abram was happy with his as well. This is the land of his birth. And it's no small thing to pick up and leave. It's, it's a very significant thing. It's a traumatic thing emotionally. And so that's what he is going to do. He's going to have to go, and he's going to leave his country. He's going to leave his relatives. Now, in, in that ancient Near Eastern culture, there was an immediate family that was, it was made up of, of husband, wife, mother, father, and then all the, the kids, and then their kids. And then there would have been a more, a more distant family, that per, and perhaps that more distant family with another patriarch could have lived in a separate place. So when we say his relatives, that's the whole group. And oh, I, t- I tell you what, today in our mobile society, we can't fully appreciate this. You know, I've got family that lives all over the country. I've got a, a brother in Atlanta and a sister in Indiana. And and I've got cousins and nieces and nephews in Dallas. And I've got kids in College Station and, and in San Marcos and, they're they're all over the place. In fact, Cindy and I, I think, look up, and except for myself and my folks who just moved here last year, we're about the only ones left here in Houston in terms of family. We're hoping they all come back one of these days. But we just don't have the same kind of system that they did because, you know, if I want to get a hold of my daughter, even while she's in church, I would never do it. did it one time by accident. I forgot their church ended after mine. I could pick up my cell phone. I can call her. Or I can text her a message any time, day or night. We don't even have to stop at a payphone anymore. In fact, I understand that emails are even starting to be out. I missed something somewhere. I'm just trying to catch up to how to forward an email. sometime. I know how to do that. But I guess I'll catch up to the Facebook thing pretty soon. But I wouldn't count on it. I kind of like my privacy. I, I, don't know, I don't know what it is about this thing. But if I'm going to bed, I don't necessarily need everybody know when it's time to go to bed now. But I know some of you on Facebook, it's a really big deal. So we won't... Cindy we won't, uh, <laughs> so keeps telling me I need to get on Facebook. I said, I don't need to get on Facebook. You just holler from one room to another and tell me what people are doing. And so I keep up with all of you. I know what all of you are doing. Pretty much most of the time. But, but obviously, they didn't have things like this. They didn't, have a, they didn't have the mail. They didn't have the Pony Express. So when, when God calls Abram to do this, this is a big deal. It's a big deal. And there's a great unknown in front of him. And it looks like an impossibility that anything good is going to come from this. Everything good is back home. Ur the counties is a beautiful city. We, we talked about that last time with two-story buildings and indoor plumbing. Indoor plumbing, 2000 B.C. That's Ur of the Chaldees. And God's telling them to leave there and go to some place you don't even know. Now remember who's reading this letter or this book first. Now we're, we're not the first readers. The first readers of this book are the Israelites. And they're in a very similar situation. And so that when they look at this text, and they say, my goodness, what faith Abraham had. He left and went to a land that he had never seen before. And it's a long way there, and that's a long way from Egypt to the land as well. But not nearly as far. And there was a, there was there were unknowns, but not as many unknowns. Oh yeah, there were giants in the land. But look what Abram had to go through. So we need to put ourselves back in the shoes, just for a moment, of the original readers, and say God called them. God called them out of Egypt into what looked like to them an impossible situation. There's giants in this land. We can't go in there. And then Moses writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and motivates them. He says, look, you're in a similar situation to what Father Abraham was, this man that you respect so much, rightly so, this great man of faith. And look what he did when he was called, when he was convinced that God wanted him somewhere else. He went, even though he didn't have all the answers. I don't know what impossible situation you're facing right now. I don't know, but I know, I know a lot. Most I know all of you, basically, except for a few new faces, and I'd like to meet you later before we're finished today. But I know there's a lot of people in here right now facing some things that some days look like impossible situations, or at the very least, really difficult things. Now, are you convinced that you're where God wants you to be in his geographical will? Are you are you convinced that you're where he wants you to be with regard to his spiritual will and I hope that's everybody here? Well, well if you're if you're listening to the voice of God, and I'm not saying the voice of the I'm not saying the even the whisper that's talked about in the old testament. I'm talking about through his word and through your conscience and, and other ways that God convicts you. But if he if he wants to have you do something that you're just not really sure about, you know, the best thing to do is faithfully obey. I've been to a couple countries now to minister. That If you left it to me, I would have never gone to. I don't want to say which ones those were because those people in those countries listen to these tapes now. So It's not your country if you're listening to this tape. (laughs) It's somebody else's country. But you know what? The opportunity was put in front of me, and we said yes, we'll do that. Now I can't wait to go back. I can't wait to go back to Pakistan. Now that's not one of the ones on the list, so I'll say that one. And that makes my family a little nervous sometimes. <laughs> but I can't wait to go back. It's very. Azim called me this week. You all know azam now, and he said that he was walking the street in the streets of Lahore this past week, and in the streets of Lahore, a man approached him on the sidewalk and said, "Hey, I see you on television every day in Karachi." And Ozam uh, said, "Oh yeah." Fortunately, he was friend, not foe. And then the guy says, "Hey, where's that tall guy? Where's he?" <laughs> And I some started laughing. He said, no, no, he lives in America. Oh, he lives in America. Well, tell him to come to Karachi. We'd love to have him come to Karachi. And I said, just set it up. We'll go. Because if that's where the Lord wants me, that's where the place of blessing is. You know, you can't be afraid of things like that. But all of us have situations that we that we we come to a crossroads and we say, this, it's clear to me that God wants me to go this direction. And there's some unknown in that direction. But what I want, I want to tell you, I can't tell you a whole lot about the future. i can tell you some things, because the Bible tells us. But I can tell you one thing about tomorrow. Even though there's a lot of unknowns for you for tomorrow and the next day and maybe next year, I can tell you one thing about it, and that's God's going to be there. He's going to be right there with you. Saying, while it's unknown to you, it's not unknown to him. He, know, he knows all about tomorrow. And he's made provision for you. Now listen, all of us, I, I presume all of us have already trusted Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and to grant us eternal life. If you hadn't, I'd sure urge you to do that today. Because God loves you deeply. He loved you so deeply he sent his son to die as a substitute for you. Be ashamed to leave that gift on the table. But but if you've done that. And you've trusted him for something so big as to take care of you after you die. That's a pretty big one, isn't it? Don't you think he's going to take care of you while you're still alive? In spite of that phone call that you're a little worried about this afternoon or maybe that talk you're going to have with your boss tomorrow morning, unknowns. Well, I don't know what your boss is going to say to you tomorrow morning. I don't know what the outcome of that trial is going to be next week. But I do know God's going to be there with you. And you see, that's the faith of Abram. That's the faith of Abraham. He was going to some that's unknown. But the place is unknown. He's never been there before. But God's there. And that's what that's what, make, that's what makes Abraham a great man of faith. He, he stepped out not knowing. You see, if we knew everything that was going to happen, it's really not faith, is it? No. Now, I'm not saying we take that irrational leap of faith in the dark like Soren Kierkegaard talked about. We're not talking about that at all. It's a reasonable step. But he has to leave his father. He's got to leave his country, his relatives, and his father's household. Now, that's the biggie. That was a big one. I mean, it's big today, but it was huge back then. He's leaving out from underneath the wing of the patriarch of the family. Now, as it turns out, uh, Tara's going to die. But he's called to to leave this group, to, to leave his family. And this is a real big thing. He's called to leave the comfort zone of the familiar. And to follow Yahweh in committed discipleship. If there's a New Testament parallel to this, I think it's probably found in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, where Jesus, speaking of what it takes to become a committed disciple, not what it takes to be saved. You need to be very careful here. But what it takes to become a committed disciple. Remember, Abraham was already saved, or Abraham was saved, and then he goes out. Now, it may have been almost simultaneous, but the faith comes first, and then the obedience second. But Jesus said something like this. He said, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now, that's not Jesus giving you the gospel. but That's him calling you to committed discipleship, where he's first. And this is not... Downgrading at all, honoring one's mother or father. That's the first commandment with a promise. Of course, that's important. It's not not denigrating at all, honoring one's wife, or or loving one's children. But it's saying if we're gonna if we're gonna be successful in this life, to use that word, it's not a bad word, but if we're gonna be successful in this life, we've got to put God first. Over above our parents, over above our wife, over above our dear children, or even grandchildren. We've got to put God first. And that's what makes Abram great. Just a a very, very quick preview of coming attractions. There's going to be a second great thing that he does. Abram's life is punctuated by two incredible acts of faith. The first one that we begin to study here, and we'll see in verse 4 next week, he does it. And then the second one's in Genesis 22. Because Abraham waits all oh, this time for this son. This son that, that comes from he and Sarah, not from he and the maid. And then God says, I want you to sacrifice him. Well, that just ratcheted up the pressure just a little bit, didn't it? But he still was willing to do so. Because he knew God. That's why I disagree with Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard said that was the most irrational thing God had possibly asked him to do, and Abraham did it in spite of all reason. I don't think so. I think he did it because he knew God by that time. He knew him very well. That's not a test that he got right at the beginning. That's a test after he had seen what God had done. He knew God was going to have a plan for him. So Jesus is speaking these words. Anyone who loves his mother or father, father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He's speaking these words to people who are already eternally saved. I think that's what's happening in Genesis 12 as well. Abraham was saved before he left Ur. And this amounts to what we would call a step of faithful obedience. Toward a life of committed discipleship. And he'll take this step. And blessing is going to follow. And when you're a committed disciple of Jesus Christ, blessings going to follow you too. That doesn't mean suffering's not going to be a part of it. But this is one of those hard ones to get our minds around. But you know what? Suffering can sometimes be a blessing. There is such a thing biblically as suffering for blessing. But more on that as the text unfolds. Salvation is by grace through faith. Regardless of the point in history that we find ourselves. Don't ever let anybody try to convince you that salvation is by works in the Old Testament and it's by faith in the New Testament. You know, some people say in the Old Testament, salvation is by works, they earned it. Like that old Smith Barney commercial. They, they, we, we, did, we do it the hard way, we earn it. The old-fashioned way. No, salvation is not by earning it either, either, oh, either Testament. It's always by grace through faith. So he's not saved by obediently leaving Haran. He's saved by grace through faith. And the object of his faith was Yahweh. His leaving Haran is going to be evidence of that faith as it was when he left Ur to begin with. So Abram is not saved by works. Please, if you don't get anything else today, make sure you walk out of here with that. Abram is not saved by works. He's saved by grace through faith. Now in verse 2. The promises to make Abram a great nation and to make his name great, those are pretty easy to understand. His descendants will be many, in, in spite of the fact that his wife is now older and is currently barren. She's, 90, she's going to be 90 years old by the time uh, that, that everything is said and done here. And Abram will be highly regarded. Which he has been, hasn't he? God did make Abram a great nation. He had many, many descendants. And his name has been highly regarded. It was highly regarded in his day, even though he wasn't perfect. It was highly regarded in his day. It was highly regarded in all throughout Jewish history. It's highly regarded in the day of Christ. It's highly regarded when Paul writes, he brings Abraham up a couple of different times as a model. And Abraham's highly regarded today. And again, like I say, by the by, the Jewish faith, by Christians, and also by Islam. Now, Islam regards him for a different reason, which I think is counterfeit reason. In case you're only here for this week, um, I think they totally misunderstand Genesis chapter 22, and they do so uh, with whatever respect is due. I believe they do so intentionally. They do. It, they do it in spite of over, overwhelming. Uh, an assailable amount of facts there. But that's a story for a different day. Jesus Christ came down through the line of Isaac. That's the biblical text. I just can't help myself. Let Let me say this. You can't just pick and choose. You know, people do that all the time. Thomas Jefferson did. I love Jefferson. Don't get me wrong. I think he was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, of the founding fathers. But he picked and chose. He picked what he wanted to out of the gospel accounts and came up with his own gospel. Remember that? And you know how that gospel ends? And they rolled the stone over the tomb. No resurrection. No resurrection. He picked and he chose, took everything of the miraculous out. And I have no respect for that. I have a lot of respect for Jefferson as a person. But no respect for that. And I'm sorry, but I have no respect for people who acknowledge Moses and acknowledge the book of Genesis and then... Get to get to chapters fifteen or, or twelve through about seventeen, and then start switching the names with with no textual valid, textually valid reason. Anyway, more on that as we get along. But the general pro- the the two promises to make his name great and to make him a great nation those are easy to understand. But this promise about blessing him, I will make you a great nation okay easy enough. I will make your name great, pretty much easy enough, but I will bless you. Now, what's that one? Because we already, already thought giving him a great name and making him a great nation was part of that blessing. Well, this general promise of blessing is less specific. But as the term has been used in Genesis so far, and as it will be used later, this term barak, which is the term for blessing, or to bless, yeah. typically conveys spiritual and physical Enrichment, often tied to fertility, often tied to fertility. So this promise is actually very closely tied with the other two. Uh, Abram is promised fame and fertility with an umbrella of blessing. Now the second imperative is just a bit more difficult The spot in most translations. I've already pointed it out to you, but it's found at the end of verse 2. In my Bible it says, and so you shall be a blessing. But literally, this is a command here. The command is actually, be a blessing. And as I said a minute ago, New American Standard and other texts do provide a footnote to let you know that that it an imperative, but they translated it as an indicative. But the literal translation is that he is to be a blessing. There's great significance in Hebrew scholarship as to the the significance of this command in its structure, in its Hebrew structure, and its setting. But the consensus, which I'll give you now for the sake of time, is that the way that this Hebrew sentence is crafted, the imperative expresses the idea here of certainty and divine intention or purpose. You see, when it's, it's part of divine purpose or divine intention it's going to happen, and that's why most translations render it something like, and so you will be a blessing. It would be almost like this. It would be like if someone was going to invite you to dinner tomorrow night, and they said, listen, don't eat anything all day long, and come hungry. You see what I mean? The circumstances that are going to play out in the beginning are going to ensure, at least hopefully if you're normal and healthy, the fact that you'll come hungry. That's something like what's going on here, at least in, a, in my very crude way of attempting to, to explain Hebrew grammar. So the Lord sends blessing so that Abram would be a blessing. Abram would be responsible For being a conduit of God's blessing to the world. And Abram is going to be a blessing. He's going to worship to demonstrate that. But it is technically a command. Now because God is binding himself to Abram with these promises. He will safeguard this man. He'll safeguard his servant. Those who bless Abraham will find themselves... Being blessed by God, and there's a lot of discussion in Christianity about this today. Yeah, that was my team. <laughs> there's a lot of discussion in Christianity about this today. You know, exactly how far do we go with this idea of still blessing Israel or or, or taking care of the nation and so forth? There's a lot of discussion. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But the text tells us, and so the text is not ambiguous here at all, those who I will bless those who bless you. That's pretty straightforward. My suggestion is when in doubt, leave the anti-Semitism at home. You know, there, there, was a, there have been people that have come to me, even after I've finished my sermon sometimes, it, and handed me extremely anti-Semitic literature. I mean, just hateful, anti-Semitic literature. And that's the one thing that'll get you asked to leave. There's a couple. <laughs> but that's that's one thing that'll get you asked to, to head on down the road. Especially if you try to, to spread anti-Semitism in the church. That's just... It has never been a good thing to do. You really shouldn't be spreading anti-anythingism in, in, in that sense, if it's against a group of people. But... We'll talk about anti-Semitism a lot more as we go down the road, but the one who curses you, I will curse. Now, the words here, there's two different words for curse. One's a little stronger than the other one, but but the first word really means one who disregards you, or one who takes you lightly. It could even be understood as one one who fails to take you seriously. And that's more than just pronouncing a curse. You know, like that fellow did to David on his way out of town. We're not talking about somebody doing that. If you disregard Abram or Abraham, who else are you disregarding? His God, exactly. And so to disregard Abraham is to disregard Yahweh. So if you take him lightly, then you're also taking God lightly. This is part of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham is God's representative in in this sense. So if you disrespect him, you're disrespecting God. Now we may say, well, how in the world, why did God pick that one fellow? Why didn't he pick me? (laughs) I don't know. But he did, and he's sovereign, and he chose this man, Abraham. And his descendants are God's people, whether we like it or not, now there's, There's a lot to that. And again, our time is up today, so I'm not going to go into that. You're going to have to come back to the future attraction. But we need to be careful with this. Anti-Semitism is not a good thing. It didn't do Luther any good at all. And it certainly didn't do Adolf Hitler and his buddies any good either. We need to be very, very careful with that. Please don't don't try to uh, spread that here. Salvation will be brought to the world, to the line of Abraham. That's what the mean is this final statement, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Remember the seed of the woman? The seed of the woman is gonna come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. This is a reference to Jesus Christ, ultimately, First through Abraham and ultimately through Jesus Christ. So all the families of the earth have the potential to be blessed through him. So God's message in this first portion is, don't mess with Abraham. Don't mess with the lion. In summary, and we'll do more on this passage later, but in summary today's message, in this passage, we observe that faith should be followed by obedience. That's the norm. Obedience is not what's saved, but... Faith should be followed by obedience. We also observe that Abraham's obedience is not as easy as it might seem to us. He's not a young man when he receives this call in the first place. But he lived in a prosperous city. And he was very likely prosperous himself. And he's told just to pick up and move. Why? Because I said so, God said. In what form the word of the Lord came to Abram in Ur, we don't know. In what form the gospel came to him, we don't know. But we do know that he responded in a positive way to the revelation that he received. Consequently, Abraham is one of the leading figures of faith in all of human history. Now that would have been a powerful message to the Jews as they wandered around in the desert before going into the land. But it should be a powerful message to us as well when we face situations that seem to be impossible but that God has called us to. Keep that in mind as we continue our study with this great figure of faith in the future. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the model of Abraham. We know he's not perfect. We all know that, but, but he was a man of faith. And he, he stepped out and exercised that faith in a way that was so incredible, and we thank you for his model. And I do thank you, Father, that even though we don't know what tomorrow holds, I know that you're going to be there. Uh, temporally, chronologically, and geographically as well. No matter where we go, you're there to take care of us. So help us, Father, not to fear tomorrow, but help us to, to be very careful to place our faith in you as the one who takes care of our tomorrows. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.